What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Tyler. We'll see you in just a moment. And hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. It's the U.S. on a collision course with China. President Xi delivering a fiery speech directed in part at the U.S., what it means for doing business and investing in China. We'll explore all of that. And taken to the woodshed, lumber prices chopped in half since their May peak, why it's happening and what it says about inflation. Plus, Instagram wants to be more like TikTok. Robinhood wants you to use Robinhood to buy Robinhood stock. And of course, donuts. It's all in rapid fire today, but we begin with the first day of the rest of our lives, or at least the second half of the year. Christina Partsonevelis with the numbers. Christina. That's right. You got stocks that continue to reach new record levels today. The move comes after the major indices closed out a strong second quarter and a first strong half of the year. So why? You got central bank liquidity, fiscal stimulus, vaccines, reopening momentum, outsized earnings surprises, all contribute to this bullish narrative with only right now bullish across the board, but the Nasdaq is trending a little bit lower. The S&P 500, though, has now rallied at least 5% in each of the last five quarters. That's the best quarterly streak since the year Elvis started his musical career in 1954. On a sector basis, energy is the best performer today, followed by materials and healthcare. Tech, more specifically, uh, semis, actually, we're seeing it as the biggest underperformer, which is not by much, you know, 0.37%. So, all that, tons of all-time highs across the board, too. I had 24 out of the S&P 500 that actually hit 52-week highs. eBay, Nike, NVIDIA, Accenture, Estee Lauder, with just a few examples that I could fit on this screen right now that have all hit all-time highs since their actual IPO. So definitely a lot of strong movement today across the board. Kelly, back to you. And speaking of strong movement, you got an Elvis reference in there, yeah, Christine. I'm all shook up. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, fade the herd or follow it. As we kick off the first trading day of the second half, the latest CNBC quarterly stock survey shows a whopping 67% of respondents say financials will be one of the best performing sectors. 55% are betting on both tech and energy. So let's drill down on some of the most attractive names across those sectors. Joining me now is Steve Hoth. He's the chief investment officer for equities at Federated Hermes. It's great to see you again, Steve. Welcome. Likewise, Kelly. So first of all, on a top level basis, do you agree with what respondents are saying that these sectors are very attractive for the second half of the year? Absolutely. You know, the, the economy is roaring, Kelly. Uh, we think probably 11 percent nominal GDP this year, probably eight nominal GDP growth next year. Earnings are exploding to the upside. We've been raising our numbers all year uh, for this year and next. So it, to us, these cyclical stocks all had a very nice pullback, depending on the stock, anywhere between 8 and 12 percent uh, in the second quarter. Uh, we think they're really set up for a big rush with fundamentals. We're going into earnings season. Uh, the numbers are going to be blowouts and the guidance is going to be more confident. So we absolutely like uh, the cyclical spaces, energy, financials. Uh, the commodity stocks, for sure, mm -hmm. um, and even you know some of the chip stocks, which are getting hit today. And by the way, the auto stocks that aren't doing well today, 
we also are in those stocks here. A quick follow-up on this. As we mentioned, that so many people like financials and energy and tech. I mean, does that herd consensus worry you? Because the last time we saw a strong consensus around the inflation trade about six to eight weeks ago was the very moment that it started reversing. Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, beware the, the herd at extremes, right? And right now, if I look at valuations, first of all, I'm not at an extreme. In fact, I've had a pullback to support levels in all these names. So we've washed out a lot of the traders in the weak hands. We've been in these stocks, as you know, I mean, since last September, but uh, we think they have another big rush in them. Uh, they've had a pullback. And valuation-wise, these are the cheapest stocks in the market, Kelly. So we're not at an extreme by any means, and we're not at peak economic activity either. So we think it's way too early to fade this trade. I also think rates are heading higher. You know, the, the Treasury is surprising a lot of people that it's not gone higher. Uh, but boy, it's really held 150 like a block of cement. Uh, we've got it at two and a half by the end of the year. There's just no way Treasury rates 10 years can stay at these levels with this kind of economic growth. And look at the price pressure we're saying. Sure. Um, so it's going to start thinking again. And when they do, rates are going high. Let's dig into some of the names in particular that you think can, can do well. So as opposed to people just buying a sector ETF that might be more sensitive to swings in interest rates, for instance, some individual names can kind of separate themselves from the pack. And chips you like Micron, right. and autos you like GM and Volkswagen, uh, in commodities you like Cleveland Cliffs, and the banks you like JP Morgan. Absolutely. And in energy, yeah. I want to finish on Schlumberger, and especially ExxonMobil. Are you worried about ExxonMobil not being as strong an investment in the kind of post-engine number one world, or is that part of the reason that you like it? Well, we've been in it before, uh, earlier. I mean, we've been in it for actually the back half of last year. So, you know, when the yield was over 10. Uh, but we thought, uh, you know, the, the proxy activity was actually positive for Exxon. It's part of our thesis that they've just got to stop drilling holes in the ground and returning cash to shareholders. And that's what we see happening over the next five years. Their assets are in the ground. They're going to be pumping them out at much higher prices. We have oil going at 90 by the end of the year. And I think the big surprise is we're going to hold high 80s, 90s levels, I think, for most of next year. So, uh, you know, their assets are in the ground. Give us back the cash. That's the program Exxon is finally on. So we still like that stock. But if you want a little more beta, uh, frankly, on the oil space, we would go with a, like a Schlumberger mm -hmm. or a Halliburton. Uh, where we're, we're also long, obviously. So let me ask something that ties this all together. When we're talking about oil staying at 80 or $90, you know, the last time it wrote, went up to 100 was right before the financial crisis. That obviously portended doom more than it portended a strong right. period of investment returns. Now, that was over 10 years ago. So maybe, you know, in, in real terms, we're well below those levels. But is oil at 80 or 90 going to act as a break on the economy? It's the only part of the inflation landscape that's working right now, and it acts as a tax, especially on lower-income consumers. Is all that extra cash just going to go into them buying gas for their cars or, or paying their fuel bills? Well, you know, the, the U.S. economy is much less sensitive to energy prices, Kelly, than it was certainly when I started my career 40 years ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just not as as important. Remember, we're also big oil producers. So there's a winner and a gainer in, in oil going up. But then that the U.S. economic activity is roughly neutral to oil itself. Prices going up is part of the inflation story. And it's one reason that we think uh, the Fed is 
at risk here falling behind the curve. Uh, but some of that uh, oil price inflation is going to bleed through to wage inflation and then broader uh, price inflation in the economy. We're seeing that already. But in the meantime, right at the upper center are, are these energy companies. And, you know, one of the lessons I've learned over the years, don't fight the last war. But that's what everyone tends to do. Sure. Right now, the Fed is fighting the last war, which is, you know, they, they hiked too soon in 0809. Now they're going to keep the pedal to the metal. The oil companies are fighting the last war. We saw it with the Saudis today with, with Russia. You know, let's not uh, try to drive out and, and raise, uh, you know, production too quickly and try to drive out the Texan guys. And so they're kind of holding back, surprisingly to some, not to us. Hmm. Uh, they'd rather see the price rise here. And the shale guys are much more controlled this time around. Again, they're fighting the last war, which was don't ramp up production too quickly. So we think the outlook here is actually pretty positive on energy prices. Yeah, you could almost joke that OPEC's biggest ally is the ESG cartel, if you want to call it that. I didn't say that. I know, I did. Right. Steve, thanks so much, sir. It's great to see you. All right, Kelly. Steve Auth with Federated Hermes. Well, speaking of prices, let's turn to lumber, which has actually been collapsing lately. And here's an interesting spin on it. Has it actually been another victim of meme mania? The lumber trade exploded earlier this year, hitting a high of $1,700 just to collapse from May, more than 40% to near $700. We're at $715 right now. We've just posted the first negative first half for lumber since 2015. So what happened here? Our next guest joined us earlier this month and said all indications pointed to a retest of the recent lows and a big move lower. And that's, in fact, what's taken place. So what does he see now? With us is Kyle Little. He's the chief operating officer at Sherwood Lumber. Kyle, first question is, what do you think? Is this price correction even more than you anticipated? Where do we go from here? Well, thank you for having me again, Kelly. Great to be back. Um, I think it, in all measurable things, we started essentially here at the beginning of the year. So it is probably a little what we would deem overcooked at this point. But when you had a price move and the velocity that we had before, one could say that we moved to that high end was an overshoot as well. So uh, right now, no doubt that uh, this pullback has been voracious. It's been ugly for a lot of people in the industry, but also on the other side of the equation for the developers and the builders, it's provided you know a, a definitely breath of fresh air and a, a tremendous opportunity to reset for the second half. Did that push to the highs have the hallmarks of kind of, you know, I, I use the term mean, meme mania, but in other words, when so much of the investment landscape in that moment was concerned about inflation and seeing, you know, these price spikes in all kinds of stocks, I mean, was it fundamentals that drove lumber prices to spike that high? I, I think partially yes and partially no. Fun, fundamentally, uh, we were moving pre-COVID to a, a higher high environment. Uh, and I think what we saw with that disruption in 2020, particularly in the shutdown, when everybody exited their inventory positions, mills shuttered and what have you, uh, uh, really uh, created a, a huge imbalance between what was necessary to feed the demand uh, just for a normal marketplace, yet let alone one that had this surge of activity with DIY and uh, repair and remodel activity in 2020. Now, uh, with what the builders did in this ramp up in sales, and we caught up, which was that catch up period, why, we, why the, a lot of lumber needed to be purchased uh, over that period of time, and people were paying whatever price they could get, um, that, that has passed. And, we, you know, we called that, we talked to, to everybody about that, and we advised our clients to be patient. Unless there was an absolute need, uh, there was not 
uh, a reason to go out there and participate today. Right. Uh, now that we've we've seen this uh, pullback, uh, any projects that are slated here for uh, here in the Q- Q3 or Q4, uh, there's really no better opportunity to look at possibly taking some chips off the table. Well, traders are already speculating about whether we're going to see a housing slowdown here. You know, I've seen different analyst notes on it lately. I look at these stats on lumber where it says that May and June unit sales volume was already substantially lower than in the previous four months. So did high prices act as enough of a break to, to reset the market here? Should we expect to be paying around 715 going forward? Is that still too high? Is it going to spike again? Well, based on what we're seeing in regard to the demand just here for the next 90 to 120 days, one would think that we're going to get a, a bounce uh, uh, sometime very, very soon. Typically in lumber, uh, uh, we follow a very nor- uh, uh, dis- defined seasonal pattern. And uh, this year, 2021, seems to be following that much more closely. You know, prices went to this extreme high. They need to pull back to the extreme low. When, when you go into seasonal weakness, that seasonal weakness uh, um, started when we talked uh, the first time. Now it is ending here o- over the next uh, two to three weeks. And uh, we should see a, a measured uh, interest in, in buying and refilling inventories uh, for customers and uh, dealers that need to go out there and purchase for for the foreseeable future. Well, and so that I would could... not be surprised to see see a, a strong bounce here in the next two to three weeks. And if you're right, that's going to catch the attention of everybody from people trying to figure out whether the growth or the infl- uh, inflation trade will predominate in the back half of the year, even to the Fed. Uh, watching all of these for a tell on the supply chain and on demand. Kyle, appreciate you joining us as we continue to follow. It feels like we're doing the play-by-play almost the way that we are (laughs) trying to call this one quarter by quarter, but it's really great to have you here with your analysis. Thank you. Thank you again. Kyle Little of Sherwood Lumber. Coming up, Chinese President Xi Jinping marking the centenary of the Communist Party with some harsh threats about foreign pressure towards Beijing. We'll dig into the state of relations with China and what U.S. companies should be doing there. Plus, Krispy Kreme is going public again and shares are kind of slumping. Well, jumping, let's call it now. They opened at 1630. That was below the $17 a share price that was set in the IPO itself. And that was below the range of $21 to $24. So again, from that that current price now of $18.25, that is about a 7% increase. We'll have more on whether investors should bite into this donut darling. And as we head to break, let's check on some of yesterday's IPOs and their second day of trading. Three of the five names on our board are in the red, including Zometry, LegalZoom, and Sentinel One. The gainers include Clear up 19% and DD Global up 16% today. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. 
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Chinese President Xi Jinping commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party yesterday, delivering a fiery speech in Tiananmen Square, saying, quote, the Chinese people will never allow foreign forces to bully, oppress or enslave us. Whoever nurses delusions of doing that will crack their heads and spill blood on the Great Wall of Steel built from the flesh and blood of our 1.4 billion Chinese people. So what does this warning mean exactly for America and American businesses? For more, I'm joined by Anya Manuel. She's director of the Aspen Security Forum and a former State Department official focused on South Asia policy. Also with us is DeWardrick McNeil. He's managing director at Longview Global and a former Department of Defense official focused on East Asia security relations. He's also a CNBC contributor. Welcome to you both. Anya, I'll begin with you. Um, I mean, I, I don't even know what we ask. The, the, the language is so stark. I guess the question is, how does the U.S. respond? Absolutely. The language is very stark. But this nationalistic tone is normal for President Xi. Just usually an American audience doesn't pay as much attention to his speeches. This speech was designed to be reassuring for his domestic audience and a little bit worrisome for the world. It signals China is back. We're not afraid. We will not be bullied. And he feeds right into the increasingly nationalistic impulses that you have, especially in the younger generation of Chinese. How should the U.S. respond? Go ahead. I think uh, by not saying very much for now. But what, what point does that make, Anya? Do we, do we just kind of, you know, sit here and go, OK, sure, yeah, you know, you can say things like that and we just nod along and you can, you know, tell us what our, our companies what to say about Taiwan and sort of set the terms for doing business in China and, you know, this and we all and we just do we stay silent and just kind of not along? I think, no, definitely not. Not along. I think the Biden administration is doing a quite good job with this already. You know, when Tony Blinken met in Alaska with his Chinese counterpart, there was a big speech given <laughs> like this. Tony then stood up. Secretary Blinken then stood up and said, Look, here's how we see the world. You see the world differently. And they have a pretty good rhythm now. They're going to cooperate on the few things we can cooperate on, but we'll challenge China where we need to challenge them. What does all this mean for U.S. business? I think the idea that there's going to be a detente and it'll get much easier with the Trump administration no longer in power, I think that unfortunately is not going to be the case. Yeah. Relations between China and the U.S. will continue to be rocky. And that's actually uh, the point that Neil Ferguson makes as well in a piece for the Times Literary Supplement, um, Dvorak, where he says, uh, more or less, this is a second Cold War. He says, just because the first one lasted around 40 years is no guarantee the same will be true of Cold War II. Those making U.S. foreign policy today must hope for the best but prepare for the worst. It may indeed be a long game. So, Dvorak, if that's the case, what do companies, American companies, investors, what, what does everybody do in the meantime? Yeah, it's a good question, Kelly. Look, I agree with Anja. We, we, we do not need to sit silently, and the Biden administration is not doing that. As you well know, the G7 was an attempt to try and rally like-minded countries around what they consider to be assertive behavior 
that China has been exhibiting. For Western businesses, this is a tough one because, quite frankly, we are pushing to a point where the Chinese are passing laws and the U.S. have already passed regulations that's really going to force a business to choose between short-term profits or longer-term security challenges and control from China, who's made it clear that there are ways in which they are open, but it's open with limits. I call this setting the edge, and there's going to be very little room to run to the left or to the right of China in terms of what it considers its core interests, Taiwan, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, South China Sea. And so this is, this is rough going, but I think we're going to have to figure out whether or not Beijing sees the value in having U.S. and other investors helping them to continue what she has tried to make to his people the case for earned legitimacy, meaning we have delivered for the Chinese people. You're powerful, you're rich, and that's largely because China has been open to outside engagement and investment. But if this is coming to an end, I think China is going to have a rough road ahead, continuing to, to deliver for right. the Chinese well, people. Well, listen, and, and if it comes to an end, like you said, they're in a way shooting themselves in the foot. The best scenario is to let U.S. companies contribute to their GDP, make it seem as though they have access to all the best products in the global marketplace while maintaining full political control. And I, get, I think a lot of companies who went in there 15 years ago thinking this is an exciting moment where we can help to actually liberalize the country where our ideas can be part of soft power, where we might help promote democracy in a very subtle way, um, or, or even at the worst might have thought we have no role to play here. Are they, act, are they actually playing a role in advancing the interests of the Chinese Communist Party by playing ball over there? Well, this is, this is hard to say. I mean, I think, yeah, absolutely the Chinese are going to benefit from some of this. But I want to turn the tables for, you, for Chinese companies as well. Look, we just saw Didi list publicly. So U.S. capital markets are still important for Chinese companies as well. So this is not just us looking to them. China has to really consider all of its interests. And, you know, Didi is a perfect example. Yes, Hong Kong is there, but Hong Kong has not done everything that the Communist Party has suggested that it would do with respect to capital markets. So the U.S. market, U.S. capital is still important to Chinese development. And I'll just say that a speech that he that the speech that he just gave is not doing his softer, kinder, gentler diplomacy any real favors. Sure. And, and Anya, we have to go. But if if they still need U.S. markets and U.S. capital, then should the U.S. react uh, in some way while we still have the leverage before the leverage is not there for us to use? It, it should. And we are. You know, there are laws coming out of the U.S. Congress every day, uh, some around how much accounting uh, has to be done before you list a Chinese company in the U.S., increasingly stringent export controls. So it is getting tougher from the U.S. side as well as the Chinese side. I would say on the Chinese markets, you have to parse it by industry. If you're in the American or Western tech industry, very hard to do business in China. If you're in the financial industry, much easier, and they're rolling out the red carpet because they still need you. So you have to really parse it industry by industry. And, and be aware of that, of the role that you're playing, I think, as well uh, in all of this. It's a fascinating discussion and not an easy one. Guys, thank you both very, very much today. Anya thank Manuel you, and Dewardrick McNeil. Still ahead, the number of first-time jobless claims in the U.S. fell sharply to a pandemic low. But with still more than 11 million Americans on unemployment benefits, 
how are recruiters filling the record number of open positions? We'll get the latest from the CEO of Recruiter.com. Plus, we're digging into the donut trade with Krispy Kreme going public again today. Here's a look at the company ringing the opening bell at the NASDAQ. We'll be back in a moment. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get a quick check on markets as we kick off the back half of the year. We're starting with an 82-point gain on the Dow, a quarter percent. The S&P is actually up a third of a percent today. The Nasdaq Composite slipping by two-tenths of one percent. And, of course, there's been a flurry of IPOs this week. Uh, today, we have Krispy Kreme going public, but they're not the only one on the Nasdaq today. Shares of rocket builder Astra Space are up about eight percent after the company closed its SPAC deal with Holicity. Gives them about half a billion dollars in new capital to build out production in hopes of reaching their goal of launching one rocket a day by 2025. Wow. Micron shares are falling despite beating estimates and raising guidance. The CEO saying they saw strong growth across all end markets, including PCs, handsets, cloud, and autos. That said, rising costs and demand worries about PCs are weighing on the stock. It's down 6%. That was also one of Steve Auth's picks today for the second half of the year. Shares of Etsy are also lower and poised to snap an 11-day win streak after closing out their best month since November. They were up 25% in June, powered by some big acquisitions. Remember Depop and then that Brazilian-based company? Etsy shares today are down about 3%. Over to Rahel Solomon now for our news update. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. In Florida, President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden thanking first responders for their efforts to find survivors in the rubble of that collapsed condo building. The president introducing himself as Jill's husband while greeting the group. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer announcing a $5 million lottery to try to entice people to get vaccinated. Prizes include a $2 million jackpot, daily winners, and also college scholarships for kids aged 12 to 17. And mask wearing hasn't only been slowing the spread of COVID, it also reduces cases of other illnesses. So then what happens as more and more people hang up their mask and get back to normal? Vectorel will explain how the flu could make a comeback and former FDA commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb will have the latest on the Delta variant. That's tonight on the news. You're now up to date, Kelly. I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thanks very much. Got some breaking news. It's Robinhood's IPO filing. It's just come out. Gives us a lot of information about how their business actually works. Kate Rooney is here with the details. What do we know, Kate? Hey, Kelly, Robinhood out with its S1 filing with the SEC just a few moments ago. The trading startup has a placeholder here on the first page. Offering size of about $100 million. That figure will likely be multiple times higher when it does go public. Robinhood listing on the NASDAQ under ticker Hood, H-O-O-D. The main underwriters on this deal, the bankers here, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Barclays, and Citigroup. Uh, as far as some of the financials here, Robinhood did report a loss in net income in the quarter. That was $1.4 billion last quarter. Revenue, though, about $522 million for the quarter. Some user numbers here. A lot of interest in that. Robinhood now has $18 million net funded accounts. That's up from $7 million a year ago, so about 150% increase there. Assets under management, also a massive jump, 
$80 billion in assets under management for Robinhood. That's up from $19 billion a year ago. And uh, Kelly, interesting note here on customer allocation. Robinhood says in the S1 they expect underwriters to reserve approximately 20 to 35% of shares for retail traders, for Robinhood customers specifically. And uh, still diving into some of the risks and financials here. We'll bring you more headlines as we get those. Kelly, back to you. So, Kate, let's just go over this for a moment because, um, I mean, the, the numbers are pretty bad in terms of the quarter, right? You know, we're talking about a loss of $1.4 billion versus $53 million a year earlier. Are there special one-off factors in that, you think? A lot of spending. Um, they've spent a ton on cr- customer acquisition. We'll get you some of the details as we find those. But, I mean, some of these high-growth startups, you see that customer growth you know, that doesn't necessarily come out of thin air. It's likely that they spent a lot on uh, customer acquisition, whether it was marketing. We'll try to find some of the reasons behind that. But that is often the case with some of these high growth tech startups. Robinhood really is sort of positioned more as a tech company than it is a brokerage firm. And that's why a lot of venture capital investors have kind of flocked to Robinhood and seen it as a good bet because of those user numbers. They may be able to sort of look away from the, the losses uh, in the near term. We've this one in particular, you know, just watching the wires here, it looks like that three-month net loss, again, of $1.5 billion, uh, was for a special situation related to uh, maybe some debt issues in here, if I can find it, getting a fair value adjustment to convertible notes and warrant liability. So, again, to the oh, extent it reflects kind of yeah. accounting issues, even if they are, you know, business-related, I think people would look past that. The other interesting one to me is that it's assets under management and monthly active users are a little bit less than I would have expected. I mean, assets under custody of $81 billion, okay. Monthly active users, just a hair shy of $18 million. Um, you know, they're, they punch above their weight, I guess is the way I might describe it. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I think with the, the assets under management, the average account size for Robinhood is likely smaller than a lot of the other brokerage firms. So it'll be interesting to compare and see if that's in the S1 in terms of how much your average Robinhood customer has. I mean, maybe it's in the low thousands versus Charles Schwab is typically in, you know, hundred thousands. Yeah, and assets under custody, you know, not the same as assets under management. So we'll we'll continue to dig through it. This is one of the most successful startups in recent years and obviously has become the face of meme mania, uh, the retail revolution and and all the rest of it. They're going public tomorrow, Kate? Uh, We've got a few weeks here until they actually go public. They'll start their roadshow and likely later in July, but typically three to four weeks after we get this paperwork with the SEC. So a little bit of time here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trading under the ticker hood. Yes, un- yeah, un- under the hood. Exactly. There's so many IPOs with <laughs> losing track. Kate Rooney, thank you very, very much. We really appreciate it. And we'll continue to comb through those numbers and bring you more nuggets as we do learn them. Meantime, the under-the-radar move to boost Apple TV ratings is coming up after the break. We'll also talk about Krispy Kreme's IPO and its investor appetite. And Instagram, apparently no longer just a photo-sharing app, trying to be more like TikTok. Uh, we're back in a moment with all of those stories and more. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. We want to get through all of these stories in rapid fire, everybody. There's just so much to talk about. Mike Santoli is here. Ina Freed from Axios. I see Steve Grasso down there at the New York Stock Exchange as well. He's a CNBC trader. Um, it's great to have you guys. We want to rip through all of these. Let's start with Apple on the Roku remote, Ina, because there's also a Netflix button, okay? So the real question is how much is Apple paying for the privilege and is it going to move the needle for Apple TV? 
Well, I think they have to do this. I mean, they have to be the places where people want to watch TV that certainly can use their own devices as a way of attracting customers. Um, but this was clear from the moment they announced Apple TV Plus. When they first did it, they made what up until then had been unprecedented moves, making deal with rival Samsung, its closest rival, but an important force in TV. They want to be where people watch TV, and Roku is one of those places. Do they just need better content, Steve? Well, they need more content, right? So this is a bigger win for Roku than it is a, a loss, if you will, for Apple. Uh, look at the numbers. Apple has $54 billion in services. They really need to make something happen here. I think they're, they're willing to say, we need a partner here. I think the stock goes much higher from here. I'm a buyer of Apple. Right. I own Apple, and I'm not selling it. Does Apple TV need to do well, Mike Santoli, for the shares to perform well? I think we already know the answer. I would say not really, uh, but this does show perhaps Apple's treating it as a little more of a business. It's not just kind of an indulgence, an experiment. Let's do it on the side. Why not do it? Uh, yeah. Clearly, they have to make some of these compromises to make it something more. All right. Let's move along. Talk about Robinhood. We just got the numbers. Mike, what jumps out to you so far about what we're learning about how this company actually does business? Um, that the majority of the volume, the revenue, and the client assets are in options and cryptocurrencies. So it really isn't, at its core, a, a investing in stock type client base at this point. At least that's where they're making their money. Because remember, zero commission on just regular common stocks. So that's something you have to keep in mind in terms of it's not necessarily going to be the case where their revenues and, and assets in-house grow just along with the stock market. You get that appreciation. It's going to be basically very transaction oriented. Also, heavy marketing spend, but not surprising. You know, $400 million annual rate of marketing spend in the first quarter was up like 40%. That could probably be dialed back over time. Steve, Hood, you like it? Well, this, I heard you talk about it before. It's not, a, it's not about revenues for them. It's not about making money for them. And just think about it. How many active users, Kelly, did you say they had over 18 million? Even if that's a little falling a little bit short, all of those are going to be receptive to supporting that stock, buying that stock, and being recurrent investors in that stock. So, yes, I do like it, regardless of the fact that revenues might not be there. Sure. And, I, I mean, you know, it's not as if... Um you know, 18 million is a bad number. It's just, I think, a reminder that these are very different businesses. This is not Facebook. This is not Instagram. You know, it's, it's more like a TD Ameritrade platform or something like that. Definitely. And I think the big thing here is their business model and how people feel about that over the long term, where those free commissions are being paid for by you sharing your deal flow, your, your trade flow uh, with large institutional investors. And we'll see if long term people accept that idea. All right. Well, I can't be too tough on Robinhood because Krispy Kreme, everyone's beating up on. It. I mean, it's going OK, this IPO, but it priced below the range. I think it opened below that, although, Mike, now it's kind of traded, uh, bounced above those levels. So, I did not know they owned Insomnia Cookies, by the way. I mean, that's a decent, you yeah. know, that's, that's like, uh, that, that should get people excited. It's a recent buy. Yeah, very bold diversification move into cookies. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it's interesting. You know, it's a little bit under $3 billion market cap right now. I just looked. It's like 60% of the market cap of Wendy's. It's now at about the same kind of price-to-sales ratio of Wendy's. It's not that huge a business. It's kind of interesting as a niche, maybe. Uh, but is the category growing? Are donuts growing? Is coffee growing? You know, restaurant brands owns Tim Hortons, and that was struggling for a good while, uh, you know, within that company alongside Burger King. So I just think it's one of these things. It's, it's kind of feeding off of the fumes of the accident that 20 years ago it was this crazy moonshot called stock. It's true, Stephen. I wonder if there's actually it's still <clears> sort of a, 
unfair hangover on the stock. I mean, being owned by JAB for a few years is no slouch. Well, I look at it, I have a different outlook on this. First of all, they're going to be the only direct play, donut play out there. <laughs> and we're coming out of we're coming out of a pandemic. I had COVID, Kelly. I'm up 10 pounds from COVID. You know why? Because you only live once. All right. So nobody's sitting here saying I want to count calories anymore. The, the economy is totally opening back disagree. up. I totally disagree. Now that it's opening back up, Steve, you got to get, yeah, you so know, you, you got to get your, your swim shape. trunks on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. But everyone's, everyone is still going in that hybrid mode. They're wearing stretchy pants. So it allows for that extra 10. <laughs> so I, I think it's going to be okay. I have a little bit of a different outlook. I think we're going to be pleasantly surprised. Well, I think investors didn't love the uh, the losses last year as, as mature a company as this is already. But they have a growth strategy. You can read it in the S1 and trade it deep out in the meantime. All right. Finally, this one today is possibly as kind of the biggest at stake. Instagram is trying to make some more changes that will make it look and feel more like TikTok. Their uh, head, Adam Masseri, announced that Instagram will start showing users full screen recommended videos in their feed, saying we're no longer a photo sharing app or a, a square photo sharing app. He also specifically highlighted serious competition from TikTok and YouTube. You know, this is a huge deal. Um, do you think they're going to get it right or... How much has TikTok sort of stolen their thunder here? Well, you know, this is Facebook's perennial problem is every generation, every micro generation uses a different social network than their parents and the ones that came before them. And Instagram used to be able to keep up by acquiring companies like Instagram, like WhatsApp. Sometimes it would clone them. Sometimes it would try and add features. The acquisition door is largely closed, especially for big deals. So they're going to have to sort of try and win over each of those generations. And it is tough. Instagram is still their younger brand, but mm -hmm. Instagram is probably now a bit old. Mike, I, as, a, as a heavy user of Instagram, I've got no problem if they put more videos in. If, if, you know, after you experience TikTok, Instagram does feel a little bit stale. Yeah, I can see, you know, increasing the density of video makes a lot more sense, trying to be a little bit more edgy with what they deliver to you. I do wonder if this is a little bit of a test of what's supposed to be the secret sauce of the TikTok algorithm in terms of how exactly <laughs> it learns about you, whether that AI is something that's replicable, or even if Facebook really wants to directly, uh, you know, copy that as opposed to make it a little bit more, I don't know, you know, curated in your own kind of follow Absolutely. list and searchable. Uh, but it's interesting. That's true. I like it being my own uh, curated content, we got to go, Steve. So are you a buyer or a seller of Facebook here? Uh, uh, Facebook is up 28% year to date. I think it's just trying to hold on to the older generation. But I always like making this actionable, Kelly. Y-O-U. Take a look at this one. Extremely light float. This one can clear. go much yep. higher. Clear, secu uh, clear, secure. This is the one that was uh, IPO yesterday. I bought it today. All right. I think it was down. So you're buying the dip uh, here at this, this price point. Guys, thank you all. We really appreciate it. Got through a lot today. Steve Grasso, Mike Santoli, and Ina Fried of Axios. Now, as the labor shortage continues, recruiters are seeing a 67% increase in workload from last year. That's the biggest increase ever, according to Recruiter.com. And the CEO joins us to discuss in just a moment. Welcome uh, back. We've had some breaking news out of the White House COVID uh, briefing this afternoon. Let's bring in Meg Terrell with those details. Meg? Hey, Kelly, the CDC director saying that though case levels overall are low and have come down more than 90 percent since their peak in January, we are starting to see 
a bit of an uptick in case numbers. And she is warning about the what she calls hypertransmissible Delta variant. We are seeing a 10 percent increase in the seven day average of daily new cases now a week over week. So we're at an average of about 12,600 a day. This is still very low levels. But she is warning that in communities where there are lower rates of vaccination, she says there are a thousand counties with vaccination rates of under 30 percent. Those counties are very vulnerable to increased spread. She says Delta now is the second most prevalent variant here in the United States. And in the coming weeks, she predicts it will eclipse the Alpha variant. That's the B117 variant first identified in the UK. Uh, she says it accounts for about 25 percent of all sequences uh, of variants in the U.S. right now. And in some communities, as much as half of the sequences are Delta. So in some areas, we are starting to see surges in cases and hospitalizations, she thinks, potentially because of the Delta variant and low vaccination rates. And as we head into the July 4th weekend, they are making a plea for everybody who's not yet vaccinated to consider it because it does provide protection against Delta. Kelly? What would be the next step, Meg, if, if their concern continues to grow? Well, they are, we believe, I think CNN has reported, they're starting task forces to try to take on Delta and, and potentially address these vaccination rates. That really is the strongest uh, measure that they know of and that they are emphasizing uh, to try to keep folks out of the hospital um, from getting very sick from COVID. Uh, also potentially try to stop the spread as much as they can. Um, otherwise, you know, Kelly, we are seeing places like L.A. County reinstating mask guidance for indoors. The CDC doesn't appear to want to do that, but it is a yet. concern. Yeah, yeah. All right, Meg, thank you very, very much. Our Meg Terrell with the latest from the White House. Meantime, Recruiter.com, which recently started trading on the NASDAQ, speaking of IPOs, RCRT is the ticker there. It's out with its June survey showing recruiter sentiment at record highs for the second straight month. Joining me now is Chairman and CEO Evan Sohn. And Evan, it's great to have you back. I mean, you know, sometimes we struggle to find, you know, the, the best anecdote in a, in a research report. Not here. I mean, every every different line is filled with something new and, and sort of shocking about the state of the labor market, right? Uh, yeah. You know, if we had to give a theme to this month, it would be chasing candidates. Everybody's chasing candidates. Uh, candidate sentiment is uh, down. Uh, that means the uh, candidate sentiment went from 3.4 last month to 3.2 this month, meaning they're, uh, they're interested in a new job. Uh, employers are, for, for the second month in a row that we're tracking it, raising salaries. Last month, the recruiter, 42% of rec recruiters reported increasing salaries. This past report, it was 50% increasing salaries. Yet we're still trying to find these, uh, these candidates, uh, and it's getting really, really hard to do that. In fact, uh, the, one of the biggest sectors of growth we saw was actually recruiters, uh, companies hiring yeah. recruiters to help fill those talent shortages. That's a really interesting point. Um, we're seeing, I think Indeed was uh, one of the ones recently saying that they're seeing more employers using incentives to attract job candidates. So where do we go from here? I mean, is this all going to actually roll over once we hit September and some of the issues with seasonal help uh, lessen and we get past the, uh, the additional jobless benefits? I mean, is it just, is this going to be as bad as it gets, you think? Yeah, so I, I really hope that you're absolutely correct. And, and I really hope that come September, uh, people, kids going back to schools, schools that are opening, you know, you have to really drill into why are candidates staying at home? Why are they not even interested? Are they taking the summer off? Are they only going back to where there's going to be remote work? Um, what are there other reasons that they're interested in? I'll, I'll tell you one thing that was really interesting that we found. 67%, uh, the recruiters reported that 67% of the roles did not require a college degree. 
Now that's down from 71%. So all of a sudden now let's open up the pool of people. Uh, the slide that you just saw was actually really interesting. So here we are, we have this incredible talent shortage. We're gonna pay more for candidates. We're gonna open up to a greater pool, yet in per while in-person actually stayed consistent, hybrid ticked up and remote actually ticked down. Hmm. So companies are saying, hey, look, I know we have a talent shortage. I know we're gonna have to pay more for people, but I still want them to be in the office at least for a period of time. Do you think the people who wanna stay home and aren't interested in looking are at some, I mean, to me, it overlays a lot with the kind of millennial generation who might be raising kids. And I, I went back and looked at the data and once you hit 60% of parents, uh, both, or once you hit 60% of parents with children working, it seems to be the ceiling that we hit in the late 90s. We kind of were up back up there, you know, in the middle of the 2000s. You know, is it is it unsustainable? And was COVID just an excuse, perhaps, for a segment of the labor force that maybe now says we're only one or the other of us is going to work for that to be kind of the new normal? Yeah, I, I think we're seeing, you know, there was a, an article the other day about it, you know, working, working mothers uh, who are now like to be at home. So I'm only going to take a job uh, where it's at home. I, I think one other thing that's happening is that, you know, if you were a candidate and last month you saw someone offering X dollars more and this month you're seeing even more dollars, maybe I'll just wait around until right. the number actually hits the, yeah, I'm going to hit the, you know, big bucks, no whammies and I'll, I'll hit that button when that actually happens. I, I was thinking about with the vaccine even that, you know, the longer you wait to get your vaccine, the better the prizes are getting, you know, I mean, it's sort of acting as yeah, a perverse. It's pretty crazy, right? Yeah, perverse incentive to wait uh, as well. Evan, thanks for joining us. And, and last thing, then, do you think this all sets up for a blockbuster or actually a terrible jobs report because there's simply not enough companies able to add the people that they want to add? Yeah, so look, I think that, you know, the sentiment, the recruiter sentiment is still 3.8, the same as it was last month. The job numbers are actually up by, uh, by uh, went from 19 open roles to 20 open roles. We have a lot more roles that they're working on from last year. Uh, I think we're going to have a strong number. Uh, I just think that we're a long way off before we really resolve the 7 million unemployed, the 9 million underemployed. So we have a long way to go. A long ways to go. And we'll see how much progress can be made if, you know, if those positions that companies want to fill aren't even being filled. Evan, thanks so, so much again. Evan Stone joining us from Recruiter.com. Let's get a check on shares of Krispy Kreme, which are up about 14% now. So they're kind of adding to their gains. There we go. They're almost hitting 20. They're up 16% right now. Uh, they We'll keep an eye and see if it can kind of climb into the close. Not the usual pattern we see for IPOs, which tend to pop and then recede. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. I want to show you shares of a Chinese tech company called Kanzun. It may be under the radar to most investors in the public, but not for Kathy Wood, who is betting big on this name. She purchased shares for her ARC Next Gen Internet ETF and ARC Autonomous Technology and Robotics ETF. Each day this week, Kanjun went public. On June 11th, it soared nearly 100%, so it nearly doubled in its first day of trading. It's a 10 cent back company. They operate an online recruitment platform which connects job seekers and enterprise users through a mobile app. So there you have it if you want that exposure in China. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. 
FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.